Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So I'm going on a bit of a paternity leave, and while I was gone, I wanted to repost a few older episodes uh, that I conducted over a year ago before the audience to the podcast really started to take off. So chances are you have not heard this interview with Andrew Young, Jimmy Carter's ambassador to the United Nations, the former mayor of Atlanta, and a true American hero and civil rights icon. Ambassador Young, Mayor Young, was a close confidant of Martin Luther King Jr., was in fact with Martin Luther King Jr. when Dr. King was assassinated. And he tells that story in pretty intense detail in our interview. He also discusses his childhood growing up in New Orleans, how he became attracted first to the church and then to civil rights work and then to politics. And it's a really fascinating slice of American history that Andrew Young is able to share with me through his own experience. And I think this interview is probably the closest I come in all of my interviews to a true oral history with a prominent historic figure. Uh, So here it is, my conversation with Andrew Young, and we recorded this uh, about a year ago, and he spoke with me from his office in Atlanta. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The neighborhood we lived in was where I think, I think that's part of what you're interested in. Absolutely. Um, Really shapes my consciousness about race and creed and class. I lived in the middle of the block, and on one corner was an Irish grocery store. There was an Italian bar on another corner. The third corner uh, was the headquarters of the Nazi Party. So even, and I was born in 1932. Oh, my gosh. So even 1935, 36, at three and four years old, my father had to explain to me about race. Was, were they, like, flying a, a swastika outside their, their door at the time? They were flying swastikas, but it, there was no air conditioning, so uh, I could hear them singing and hailing Hitler as I walked past. And about how old were you at the time? I was three and four. And uh, I guess at that point, you, I mean, you probably didn't quite have a sense of what the Nazis were all about back then. How, well, how I sort of, did. You did? Because my father took me to see the 1936 Olympics with Jesse Owens, uh, 
-hmm. And he said that white supremacy is a sickness. And you don't get mad at sick people. You try to help them. And he used Jesse Owens as an example and took me to the movies to see Hitler's getting up and storming out rather than give Jesse Owens the medal for winning the 100-meter dash and setting a world record. Uh, and my father said, but see, Jesse didn't get upset. Uh, he just went on and won three more gold medals. Uh, and he used to always say, you don't get mad, you get smart. And you never lose your temper in a fight because it cuts off your mind, your thinking. Uh, so I take it, you know, he sounds like a, obviously a progressive and, and uh, politically minded. Did, did your family ever sort of express themselves in, in politics to the extent that it was open to black families in Louisiana in the 1940s? Well, yeah. I mean, they gave me a political education. I mean, for instance, right on the corner of my house was a big vacant lot. And we didn't have any place to play. And I must have been about 10. And my father said, now, there's a mayor's election coming up soon. Um, if you call the Department, you know, of Environment and Streets or whatever they called it back then, uh, the Parks Department, uh, and tell them you want that grass cut in that lot so you all can play ball, uh, they'll probably come out and cut it. So and I did, and and they responded. So uh, he was very active politically, but uh, my parents were Republicans because they were old from the Lincoln Republican tradition, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it uh, though they were very good supporters of Roosevelt. As I, I imagine, that's probably similar to most middle-class black families in the South at the time, right? Like yeah. holdover Republicans who are supportive of New Deal progressive issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, you're in uh, – where did you go to college? Well, I was very young when I finished high school, so my parents didn't want me to leave home, so they sent me to Dillard University. And that – and what did you study there? Well, I went there under my father's guidance to be a dentist, and I majored in biology and chemistry. Uh, I transferred from Dillard to Howard after one year because we lived right – but we had moved. And when we moved my, my junior year in high school, we moved right across the street from Dillard University. So mm -hmm. I was really – almost living on the campus as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get away from home. My father had gone to Howard University to dental school. So um, and I ended up uh, attending Howard. And so I mean, was there a bit of a culture shock uh, going to Howard from from the, the Deep South? I mean, no, I grew up down the – not grew up. Not really, I lived because down the Howard was still segregated. And, and Washington was still segregated. In fact – it, it um, one of the first uh, problems I had first year I was there 
uh, we were given an assignment to go down to the Smithsonian Institute to do uh, see something, I, you know. And uh, the guy that I was supposed to go with wouldn't wait for me. Uh, had to go, and he he uh, he was hit by an automobile, and what there. What I got there, the automobile, I mean, the ambulance was taking him, but they didn't take him to any of the downtown hospitals that were nearby. They took him all the way back across town to Howard University Hospital, uh, and he was dead on arrival. And so I was, I was very much aware that even though Washington was supposedly not a southern city. It still had uh, many southern relics, and probably still does. Uh, and, and I mean, how did an incident like that make you, or 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 inform how you wanted to live your life? Right, like how? Um... Well, I knew that this was wrong. Uh, the same sort of thing happened to Dr. Charles Drew, who had developed the whole concept of storing blood and blood plasma. And uh, he was in an automobile accident and was taken to a segregated hospital. Uh, and uh, so at what point did you, what were you studying at, at Howard at the time? Were you still studying Well, I biology? continued to major to study biology. Mm-hmm. I really liked science. And I, I liked physics, and I liked chemistry, and I liked bi- biology, and I mean, I, I loved my studies, uh, but I, I didn't want to be a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, at what point did you make the definitive decision to, uh, you know, uh, well, confront your, your family at your graduation? And what did you? After was your... graduation, on the way back home from college, we stopped in North Carolina because. We couldn't stay in motels or hotels in the segregated South. So we stopped at a church conference at Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And um, I wasn't particularly interested in religion, and I didn't want to go to the... I didn't want to... I, was, I wanted to be alone. And I'd, I'd been on the track team at Howard, so I went out and I, ran, I was running. And I ran to the top of this mountain and uh, just completely exhausted myself. But, you know, sort of sitting there and looking out, it seemed like everything that I looked at was in place and had a purpose. And it hit me that if everything else, if the trees and the grass and the Wheat fields all have their purpose. Uh, that must be a purpose for me. And that was sort of a, a religious experience that, that inspired well, you to want to go to... the closest thing I'd have. I, it was a, a, a religious awakening. Nobody talked to me or anything, but there was, there was just an awareness that there had to be a purpose for, every, for me if there was a purpose for everything else. And about what year was this, would you say? This was 1951. 
Uh, was there, I mean, much of a civil rights movement to, to speak of, or at least that you were aware of uh, at that at that moment? There, there was, but I, I mean, I was very much aware of the work of the NAACP because my father was very much involved and a good friend of Thurgood Marshall. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I knew of the cases that were being argued at Harwood's Law School. Uh, but um, I, w- I wasn't interested in being a lawyer. Uh, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew what I didn't want to do. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I decided that if there was a purpose for everything and therefore a purpose for me, then I would find it one day at a time. And so I decided not to worry about what I would do with my life. I would do the best I could each day. And so then what inspired you to go to divinity school, which I I take it? uh... Well, it was an accident almost. I went, uh, when I went back uh, to Atlanta, I mean to New Orleans, there was a new minister at my church. And he was a graduate of Yale Divinity School and was on his way to Texas uh, to do Bible study at a religious conference. I, uh, he asked, he was from the north and was uncomfortable in the south, and he asked me would I drive with him. So we drove from New Orleans to Lake Brownwood, Texas, uh, which is way up in the panhandle of Texas. I only went. I only went because my roommate from Howard was from San Antonio, and he told me that San Antonio was the next big town from Lake Brownwood, which was true, but what I didn't know was it was almost 200 miles. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got to this conference, and we were the only black people there. And he said, you know, you're not going to leave me here by myself, are you? And I I decided, in fact, I met, it was the first time I had met white people who, because of their own conscience and Christian commitment, they felt that they had to go against their parents on race. And almost all of them in the meetings would get up and say, if my parents knew here knew I was here with black people or colored people, they'd say, uh, I would probably be put out of the house. Uh, and I had never met people who were that serious about their faith, that they would, you know, and so at the end of the conference, they asked me, they were looking for volunteers to work at youth work across the country. And um, they didn't have anybody black but me <laughs> that was available. So they invited, asked me to, would I be willing to be one of the volunteers? And I said, yes, I would. And... Uh, they sent me to Hartford, Connecticut, and when I 
the Council of Churches was supposed to find a place for me to stay. And they didn't have a place, so they called the seminary and asked if they had an extra room. And I stayed in the guest room at the seminary. Uh, and so I, the, after being on campus a couple of days, I went to the dean's office and said, I don't know anything about religion, and I was um, wondering if I might sit in on a couple of classes in the, you know, in the morning. And he said, well, if you would register and take three classes, uh, we could probably give you a scholarship. And so that's, that's quite quite an accident, <laughs> as you, well, uh, as I you mean, describe. All, that's all of my story. life, from the time I made the decision that I was going to take it one day at a time, everything has seemed like an accident. Uh, so what's your first memory of uh, Martin Luther King, Jr.? Well, that that summer, I went to Marion, Alabama, uh, to be um, uh, to run a recreation program in a rural church, and um, Marion, Alabama, is the town that where I met my wife, and it's also she went to the same school that Coretta King went to. Uh, and uh, they were not married. They they had just met. Uh, but um, we didn't we didn't meet until I think 1957 when uh, at Talladega College uh, at a religious emphasis week program. And, and and when we re- when we realized that our wives had gone to the same high school, and were from the same town, he invited me to stop off at his house in Montgomery, while I was driving back to Georgia uh, for dinner, and um, that's where we met. And what were your I guess earlier? What were your first impressions? Uh, how, did you sort of see him as this you know great potential future leader of of you know American? Well, he well, he was already. You know, by that time, he'd been on the cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. and uh, as the man of the year in 1956, mm-hmm. and this was 1957. So I was, I was very much in awe of him, except that he was, he was just a regular guy, and we had both had young daughters, and we spent most of the time playing with our children. And we never talked any politics or, you know, religion or anything serious. We were just being fathers. And and so how was it that you became so deeply involved with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference? Well, I think it was four or five years later, uh, 1961, four, four years later. Um, I had gone to work in New York in the National Council of Churches. And... Um, it was, um, well, there was a program that was funded by the Marshall Field Foundation, and um, they wanted me to come work with them. But then the state of Tennessee closed uh, down a Highlander Folk School. Uh, they called it a communist training school. 
because they were teaching nonviolence. Can I can I just quickly ask you about your what what do you remember about those uh, your first interaction with the sort of theory of nonviolence? Do you remember what was the first time, for example, that you remember reading Gandhi or reading uh, about Gandhi? Well, that was it. The first summer when I when I went to uh, when I left this school. I mean this camp in Texas. We went to a little camp in Indiana, Camp Mac, Indiana, which was run by the Church of the Brethren. And again, there were only two black students there, me from the South and uh, Eduardo Manlani uh, from Mozambique, who ended up being the leader of the freedom movement in Mozambique. Uh, But we were both uh, one of the young Quaker uh, ministers there gave us each a, a little copy of Nehru's book on Gandhi. And he was very impressed with it. And um, because he talked about the majority uh, of citizens uh, being able to overcome the minority of Portuguese without violence. He was convinced. And I was convinced, I mean, I was not convinced that nonviolence would work for us. Uh, I was in seminary uh, in the Second World War. Uh, we were reading the German theologians and Reinhold Niebuhr, um, people who felt that America did not get into the Second World War early enough and that they that the Christian pacifism was not uh, was sort of part responsible for the massacre of you know the millions of Jews um, and so my seminary was teaching a doctrine of more aggressive ethical involvement, uh, including the use of force. And that's what I've been studying for three years. Um, And uh, so I wasn't, I mean, I thought nonviolence was a little too idealistic. Uh, And and so... uh... Are you convinced to this day that nonviolence is too idealistic, or or did you sort of evolve towards you know? Well, I've, I evolved because I began to. Well, I, I one, the woman I married was uh, much more committed to nonviolence, and when we went to my first little church down in South Georgia, and there was a Klan rally. Um. And we thought scheduled, and we thought they were coming to harass and intimidate us. I said I didn't want to run. I'd go down and I'd want to talk to them, um, but I wanted to talk with them, and I wanted her to sit in the window with the rifle and point it at the guy who I'm talking to. <laughs> and uh, that—that's what I call negotiating from a position of strength. And she said, I'm I'm not going to, I can't do that. And I said, why? You shoot very well. She was a little country girl from Alabama. And then 
quite often we, you know, go target practicing, shooting cans and bottles and things. And so she was a very good shot. And she said, no, I can't point a gun at a human being. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? That's the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and she said, if you, ever, if you don't realize that under that sheet is the heart of a child of God, you ought to quit preaching. And let's go find something else to do. And, and that was the moment. And I said, but, you know, that's going to, if, what if he, uh, we were in a little uh, shack with a three-month-old baby. And, I, and he, I said, what if they throw a Molotov cocktail or a stick of dynamite up here? It'll, it'll blow us all up. And you got a three-month-old baby in there. And she said, well, you preach about the cross and the resurrection all the time. If you don't believe it, you ought not preach it. I said, oh, hell. <laughs> this crazy woman I married. But anyway, that was that was sort of the... And what it forced me to do was to go to the mayor, who then got on the phone with the two largest employers, Sunnyland Packing Company, which is still there, um, and Flowers Bakery or Sunbeam Bread. And they got on their their plant radios, uh, loudspeakers, and they announced that uh, they asked their people not to go to the Klan rally or not to do anything against, said, we work together in this factory, black and white together. Uh, we don't need any racial violence in this town, so the Klan will be meeting, but we hope you don't attend. You know, and uh, so we got through that, but I, I learned the lesson that, you know, a gun is not the only way to solve a problem, that you can, if you get there early and before the violence starts, uh, an aggressive understanding approach to conflict, uh, you can avoid violence. Um, and... Uh, I, I had read that you were in Memphis uh, when Dr. King was assassinated. Yeah. Um, what, uh, I, I guess, um, or were, were you at the, the, the hotel itself at the time? Well, I had been in court all day. Mm -hmm. And I came back and um, we would go out to dinner, but he was just feeling so very happy. And I'd never, I hadn't seen him that excited and joyous and weeks but he just finished having uh, you know his brother had just come in from louisville and he was surrounded by friends and um we would go out to dinner at six o'clock so at quarter to six the preacher locked on the door and said you guys better get ready my wife's got dinner on the table for six o'clock and uh, and so we uh he went up to his room to get ready, and when he came out, I, it was kind of cool, and I said, he had a cold. I said, maybe you ought to go back and get a coat, you know, and he was kind of, you know, sort of looked at his head to see, 
you know, how the, you know, whether he needed a coat or not, what trying to sort of test the weather. And a shot rang out. But I, I didn't think it was a shot. I thought it was a car backfire, a firecracker. Until I went up there and saw him laying in the pool of blood. And are, are, are you in that iconic photo pointing out the balcony? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how... And we were pointing because the policemen were running toward us. Well, we felt that the bullet came, well, we were almost sure that the shot came from over where the policemen were. And how um, did that affect your commitment to nonviolence, or, or did it? Did that, did that it, 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 it strengthened it because I felt that, uh, well, one, I was sort of upset with him for going to heaven and leaving us in hell by ourselves. <laughs> And and then I realized that, you know, he'd given 39 years of his life. Um, and um, and that if anybody was entitled to a, a heavenly reward, it was he certainly had earned, you know, any blessings that come after this life. But I was really frustrated because we weren't doing enough, even with his leadership. And I sort of realized that um, we weren't going to make it the same way without him. And and what compelled you to decide to run for Congress? Well, because th- this was... Uh... A couple of days before, the weekend before, we had been in New York, and he had held a meeting with Harry Belafonte, and uh, John Conyers, who had just been elected to Congress, uh, and um, Dick Hatcher, the mayor, who was running for mayor of uh, of uh, Gary. And the question he put to us was, how are we going to take the energy and vitality and commitment of the civil rights movement from the streets to the halls of Congress? and to the city halls of our nation. And so... And, um, and it was at that moment that, that you're like, you know... Th- no, this, 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 I, 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 didn't, it, I didn't see myself as running. I always saw myself as an organizer. Mm-hmm. And I saw myself as, as trying to get run campaigns for other people to run. And so, you know, there were... There were a number of potential districts. Uh, and, 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 and uh, you, were, you were elected to Congress in 1970, correct? Well, no, I ran in 70 and lost. Okay. And I was elected in 1972. Uh, and you were the first black post-Reconstruction uh, representative from a southern state. Uh, well, what? Barbara Jordan was elected from Texas at the same time. Ah, okay, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Congress, uh, you gravitated to uh, foreign policy issues. H- how did that? How did that happen? Well, I I, I did and I didn't. Uh, one, I had been very much involved with foreign policy issues, uh, particularly Africa. 
uh, because I had so many friends from Africa in college. And in seminary, uh, one of my classes uh, had a... it was taught by a German uh, leftist and uh, a British uh, conservative <laughs> uh, theologian. Uh, and um, the class was made up of uh, a Japanese uh, former lieutenant in the Japanese Air Force who was studying for a master's in theology. Uh, an anthropologist, black anthropologist from South Africa, um, a fellow from uh, France, and two of us from the United States, one black and one white. Uh, He was from North Carolina. I was from Louisiana. And we were roommates. But we talked about problems of the world from a global perspective. I mean, we it, we were we were in an environment, and then in 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 uh, at Howard, I had a lot of friends from Nigeria and Jamaica and Panama. So I I had um, I had a view of what was going on in the world that wasn't from books written by Europeans. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, during that time was, was the, the you know, very tail end of, of the colonial era in Nigeria and in, in Jamaica. It was, yeah. Uh, well, everything was happening. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was mm-hmm. uh, a, a very vibrant and, and politically active, active time mm-hmm. there. Um, I wanted but to I was you... actually went on the banking committee. Okay. Uh, because... We were building a mass transit system here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. but um, and we formed a mass transit committee under banking and urban affairs. But I had to serve on two other committees, so I chose international trade and international finance, international trade and finance, and consumer affairs. And it was in international trade and finance that I I began to develop an approach to the world that was more economic than political. And how uh, did you come to learn that uh, President Carter was going to nominate you as uh, the ambassador to the United Nations? Well, it was also another one of those accidents where uh, he went to California and uh, somebody asked him what in 75, 76, before he was a candidate even. And somebody said, what would you do about a Zania, Zimbabwe, and Namibia? And he said he, he was caught off guard. He didn't know what they were talking about. And he said, now, since then, I realized that they were talking about Southern Africa. And he said, but I really, I told them I didn't know what I would, I should, would say or do but that I'd be coming back in a few months and I'd have an answer. He said, what should I have said? And I said, I said, well, Governor, exactly what we needed in the South. We needed the right to vote, and we needed the right to uh, free enterprise. 
And I said, um, that's that's what people want in Africa, too. They want democracy and free enterprise for everybody. And I said, you can't go wrong advocating democracy and free enterprise. Uh, but no, no other Republicans or Democrats would advocate the right of blacks to vote at that time. And I think that won him... Uh, the attention of the black community and the liberal community and got him elected. And then he, uh, I told him that I wanted to stay in the Congress because there was nobody in his inner circle who was in the Congress. Um, and I said most of the decisions in Congress are made through relationships in the cloakroom, in the gym, in the prayer groups. And I said, I really think I ought to stay in the Congress. And he said, and I said to him that I'll come to work with you in your second term. And he said, that may not be a second term. Whatever we're going to do on human rights, we need to do now. And I need you because you were with Martin Luther King. And that gives our policy... That will give our policies some new credibility. Uh, and, and so and, I went. And, and can I ask you, and, and I, I know our, our time is just about up, um, at the United Nations, what would you cite as sort of your the best manifestation of the application of human rights, uh, of your application of, of this kind of human rights vision in American foreign policy that Carter is famous for integrating into U.S. foreign policy? Uh, well, what would be your one, biggest success on that on that front? Well, it was in, in all, for one, instead of telling people what to do, we asked them what they wanted us to do to help them. What is it your government expects of us? What can we do to help you with your problems? And so what we heard from Panama, from South Africa, from Egypt and Israel, and from Russia everybody wanted us to help them be a little more peaceful and a little more, I mean, uh, uh, Russia was being embarrassed by its, um, it was beginning to have, you know, pressure from the Jewish community on religious freedom. It was a Pentecostal group that, uh, uh, that you know, was seeking asylum in the U.S. Embassy. Uh, Mandela was in jail. Robert Mugabe had just gotten out of jail. Uh, I mean, the world, the world was in turmoil. Uh, but, because, but they saw us as a friend, and they saw us as somebody that would help them to deal, to right the wrongs of the past. And that's basically what we tried to do in and we did it really with no money, and people forget that nobody, Carter didn't kill, no American soldier killed anybody during the four years Carter was president, and no American soldier got killed in battle. Uh, well, uh, Ambassador Young, uh, I, I can't keep you for much longer, but thank you so much for just sharing your, your incredible story with me. Well, I, and to say that uh, I think as confused as things are now, 
um, the only hope is to steer a course without violence amidst all of the confusion and conflict that exists in the world today. And that by and large, much of it goes back to the fact that we're still trying to practice national politics in when the world is being led by a global uh, economic system. And the two are not in tune with each other. And so how, how would you fix that? What would be your, your remedy? Well, no, I, I think that, that uh, I, I fixed it in the city of Atlanta. I ignored Washington and the state of Georgia, and I went straight to the European and Asian money markets to bring money into the city of Atlanta. And we brought in 1,100 companies from around the world and over $70 billion in foreign direct investment to the city. And it created uh, a couple of million new jobs, uh, over a million new jobs uh, immediately. And then the Olympics after that brought in another million new jobs. So that we, we ran a city, and that's part of the making of modern Atlanta. We did not pay much attention to the politics. We attended to the economics. And we saw to it that all of our citizens got a chance to get a piece of the great American pie. (laughs) And thank you all for listening. This was an amazing story and really, I think, a great manifestation of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is to collect these kind of stories from thought leaders and foreign policy luminaries who tell me and tell you about their intellectual and moral uh, formulations, how they came to embrace the worldviews that we know them for. So thank you again for listening. Uh, Remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and find every episode on UN Dispatch, and we'll see you soon. Bye.